0: Good morning and happy Sabbath Bridge. I'm very happy to be here with you this morning. I want to let you know that yesterday I got a text from Pastor Bernie and he said, I'm sorry I'm not there but I'm praying for you and by extension he's praying for you today as well. So you're in his thoughts as we uh, go through our service today. What I'd like to share with you today is a sermon entitled, Good Enough. I'd like to talk to you about that topic on two different levels. One is on a personal level. And the other one would be on a spiritual level. As you think about good enough on a personal level, I'd like you to think about, do I ever ask myself that question? Do I ever ask myself, am I good enough? Do I ever wonder if I measure up? Do I ever wonder if I meet the standard? Do I ever wonder if I'm good enough? I remember for me, the first time I ever asked that question, I was in junior high school and I realized for the first time that I didn't have brand name jeans on. I was wearing tough skins. And tough skins had served me well through elementary school. Tough skins had worked well. I mean, I could slide anywhere and they wouldn't rip. They were tough. But when I got to junior high, I didn't have a little red tag on my pocket that said Levi. And all of a sudden, I wasn't good enough. All of a sudden, I had to tell mom, mom, we got to go shopping and we can't go to those stores. We need to go to the mall because the cool kids go to the mall to go shopping. And I remember feeling like I had to be good enough. I had to wear different clothes to be able to fit in. I had to wear a different brand to be able to be accepted in the crowd I wanted to walk with. It's a terrible thing to not feel good enough. It's a lonely place to not feel good enough. Again I ask, have you ever felt not good enough? I see it all the time. I hear it all the time. I hear it in different voices and I see it in different people. I get the sense that someone feels they're not good enough when you watch a young high school kid leave the cars, you drop them off. And they walk in and wonder, are kids gonna like me? Or they wonder things like, I wish my hair was darker. I wish my hair was lighter. I wish my legs were skinnier, I wish they were thicker, I wish I was stronger, I wish I wasn't this, I wish I wasn't that. If only I was this, if only I wasn't that, I would feel good enough. I see it in young adults, when they wonder, am I going to ever find a spouse? Good night, I'm 25, I'm 30, and I still don't, I have never met the one. Am I likable? Am I lovely? Is anyone ever going to want me? Am I good enough to be considered a spouse to someone? I see it in people who are in their mid-40s. It's time for a promotion, but they get passed by. It's time to go to the next level, but I'm stuck at the same level. And then I see someone get promoted ahead of me, and in my own mind, I compare them to myself, and I'm pretty sure that I'm better than they are. But for some reason, they got the job, and I didn't. So self-doubt creeps in, and I start to wonder, am I good enough? Have you ever been in that haunting place? That haunting place where you wonder if you measure up, if you're good enough. It's not a fun place to be, but many of us find ourselves there at different times. I invite you to the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. There's a woman who got stuck in this trap of wondering if she's good enough. I'm in the book of Genesis. I'm in chapter 29. In Genesis, you find a story about a guy whose name is Jacob. And if you know anything about Jacob, he's born. And when he's born, his parents give him the name Jacob and it means he deceives. His name is the deceiver. How would you like to be called every time to come in from play, every time to come eat dinner? Deceiver, come on, it's time to go. Hey, you're the one that deceives. Let's go get this, let's go do that. That's his name. He's the deceiver. And if you remember the story of Jacob well from the Old Testament, Jacob is this character who who just finished deceiving his dad so he could get the birthright of the firstborn, his older brother Esau. And to make it worse, mom helped him to trick dad. She cooks him the food. She helps put the goat skin on him to give the appearance that he smells like and he found game like his older brother. But he's neither one. He's not a hunter and he's not a hairy man. And you find him running from his brother. You find him meeting God as he puts his head on a rock in that stairway to heaven going up and down. God appears to him. And this is where we find that passage. Surely the presence of the Lord was here and I was unaware of it. Jacob realizes that even as the deceiver, even as the one who's not following God's path, God still pursues him. It's an important lesson for us. And then Jacob's wandering one day to a well. And at the well, he asks the other shepherds there. And this is where we come to in Genesis 29. The other shepherds are watering their sheep. And and Jacob asks what's going on. And they tell him, hey, that girl that's about to come, her name is Leah. She's a shepherdess. Her father is Laban. All of a sudden, Laban, that's my relative, and he gets excited and he goes and he finds out that as Leah comes in, the shepherdess comes in, I'm sorry, as they, as they come in as the shepherdess, she comes to him and all of a sudden he's like, I'm sorry, it's Rachel that comes to him. Rachel comes as the shepherdess and it's love at first sight. This second sister, Rachel, is the one that Jacob's heart goes out to. And Jacob goes home with Rachel. He meets the family, his uncle and he embrace and it's all a happy party. And Jacob is convinced that Leah is the girl of his dreams. I'm sorry, Rachel is the girl of his dreams. And Rachel is the one that Jacob loves. And it doesn't take long before Laban says, I see something going on here. And so they make a deal. Jacob says to Laban, his uncle, I will work for you for seven years and you will give me the bride, Rachel, the one that I love. If you want to use Bible talk, it says Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Leah had weak eyes. Do you think there's any, I wonder if I'm good enough? I'm the firstborn sister, but here comes this relative who wants to get married, and he overlooks me, and he picks my sister. And my dad gives his sister to me, so they promise that they will be married. But then if you follow the story carefully, if you follow what happens in in Genesis 29, 32, the story takes an interesting twist. Because all of a sudden, not only was there something that happened, now even it gets worse. What happened was on the wedding night, Laban, the father, brings a daughter in. And he brings the daughter in to Jacob, the husband, the groom. And they spend the night together. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up and he realizes, I just spent the night with Leah. But I'm in love with Rachel. And I committed to marry Rachel. And so then the drama gets even more intense as all of a sudden, Jacob who loves Rachel, now slept with Leah, the sister. And then the father has the kindness to say, spend the rest of the wedding week with Leah, the one you don't love, and then we'll talk about giving you Rachel, the one that you do love. Do you think there's any hurt going on? Do you think there's any wondering, am I good enough? What do you think Rachel thinks as night after night the man that she loves sleeps with who should be her husband? And how would you feel if you're Leah, who knows that the only reason this man is with you and sleeping with you is because your father tricked him into it? But he doesn't love you. He's never been attracted to you. He doesn't desire you like you dreamt you would be desired. And so then as we come down in the story, it gets worse because now not only can Rachel not have children, but Leah all of a sudden is having babies and sons at that which was a big deal. This is our verse finally, I know it's flashed a couple times on the screen. Genesis twenty nine thirty two. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Reuben, for she said it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Do you hear her ache? Do you hear her pain? He's never loved me. He married me because it was a trick. But now that I've given him a son, I'm gonna name my son Reuben because God's finally seen my misery. And that's what the name Reuben sounds like in Hebrew misery. He sees my misery. And now that I give my husband a son, surely now I'll be loved like I want to. Does it work? Sadly enough, it doesn't. And if you watch the story, you go through this story in Genesis, and drama twist after drama twist happens she has another child and this next child is named Simeon and Leah has a child, Simeon, she names him Simeon because she says surely God hears me now and surely now that I have another son, surely now my husband will love me. But does it work? It doesn't. And then it's interesting because she has another son and then another son and Rachel's losing her mind. Rachel's thinking, oh my goodness, she's having all these sons. My husband's gonna fall in love with him. I have to do something. So she takes her servant, Billa, and she offers her servant to her husband so that maybe she can have a son through him because she can't have a son on her own. And in that process, two more children, Dan and Naphtali, are born. And the story goes on and on, and it's this constant clamoring of, am I good enough? Will my husband finally love me now? And I can't provide a son for him, so I need to do this. And I can't do that, so I'll do this. We find in their story... That question, am I good enough? Do I measure up? Do I have what it takes to catch my husband's eye? Do I have what it takes to be the apple of his eye? And so I'll try everything I can to get his attention, all the while making a big mess. And it's interesting to me that out of this mess between Rachel and Leah, out of this mess between the two servants, Billah and Zipha, you find that God creates the 12 tribes of Israel. That blows me away. Out of all this drama and all of these twists in the story, God says, this is how I'm going to build the foundation of my kingdom. This is how I'm going to make it all work. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of hope to say that out of that mess, God can create some miraculous outcome. We move on from the story of Leah, go to another Old Testament story, another person who questions, do I have what it takes? Am I good enough? And we find this story in Exodus chapter 3. The character that we'll look at is Moses. Maybe you remember parts of his story. When you come to the life of Moses, Moses asks all kinds of questions because he's wondering, did God get the right guy? Did God mess up? Does he know what he's doing? As you look through the life of Moses, we'll start in Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3 and verse 11, this is how we'll pick up the story, you'll notice that Moses was already walking through the wilderness, he's already killed someone in Egypt, buried the body, thought nobody saw it, left because they find out that he had killed an Egyptian, so he runs in order to escape his past. He finds a shepherd again, interestingly enough. He marries someone, he works as Jethro as a shepherd and for 40 years he spends out there in the wilderness waiting to see what God's gonna do next. As he's walking one day, he sees a burning bush. He comes closer, he takes off his shoes, the Lord tells him, you're standing on holy ground. Moses and God start to talk in a conversation. And this is where we'll pick up that conversation in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses first question is I don't think I'm important enough to be the one <laughs> I don't think I'm your guy who am I to do this mission to go rescue Israel to rescue your people God and you go through to the next part of the story in verse 13 Moses again talking with God he says Moses said to God suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what's his name then what should I tell them it's almost like he moves from who am I to really do this to God, wait, who are you? How am I really going to know that you're the one that sent me? What should I call you? How should I refer to you? I-, I don't have all the necessary information. I don't have the necessary tools. Give me more. And you go on to four, chapter 4 and verse 1. And Moses again comes with his objection. God says, Moses, you're the one I want to lead my people. And Moses responds in 4.1. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me and say, no, the Lord didn't really appear to you. He starts to have doubts. He starts to wonder, God, I don't think I'm the one. God says, no, you're the one. No, God, I'm not. Jump over to verse 10. Moses still trying to get out of this deal. Moses said to the Lord, oh, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. I'm inadequate, God. I'm not the one. I'm not good enough. I can't even talk. Do you sense any questioning in Moses' heart? Am I good enough? Are you sure you got the right guy, God? And then to make sure that God gets the picture, watch what he says in chapter 4 and verse 13. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. I'm not the one, God. I'm not good enough. Don't you get it? I've tried to tell you over and over, but I'm not the one. What do you do when you don't feel good enough? What do you do when you wonder if you've got what it takes? What do you do when your doubts, your insecurities, your fears, whatever it is, comes so much into your head that you think that there's no way to go forward? Have you ever been in a place like that? Have you ever wondered to yourself, am I good enough? The more people that I talk to, the more that I hear that that's a question that seems to be pretty universal. It seems to be that everyone at some season in their life wrestles with this. Even talking to a friend of mine today, I hear her tell me that this lady who, who um, gets a tumor in her eye, she loses her eyesight. This is a woman who believes in the Bible, a woman who studies her Bible, a woman who has a relationship with God. And yet when the tumor comes, the first thought in her head is, I think, I think I should have been a better mom. I think I should have been a better parent. I think I should have been a better this and a better that. And she starts to go through all the things that if she would have been better here and more there and done more better things here and there, then this wouldn't have happened to her. And part of the underlying thing is it's almost like she feels like she's done something wrong and this is the consequence of it. And sometimes people feel that way. I'd like to suggest to you that the most exhausting two-letter word in the English dictionary is the word if. If. If only I looked more attractive. If only my face was more narrow, if only my face was more round, if only I had this, if only I had that, if only I drove a better car, if only I lived in a better address, if only I had a bigger house, if only I had a better job, if only my office was bigger, if only, if only, if only. And the media tends to drive this. This morning as I'm showering, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, mindless and wandering, so I look at the, the products there in our shower. And I noticed that there's a brand of um, body wash that says Axe and it says the number one, the world's number one body wash for men. And I asked myself, why do they claim that? Why has Axe become so popular? And then I thought back to the commercials. Have you ever seen an Axe commercial? Have you ever seen one? If you use this product, you're going to look more manly. Is that the message? If you use this product, you're going to smell better and girls will flock to you. If you use this Axe product, you're going to become a stud and everyone will want to be with you if you use it. But if you don't, you're on your own. It's up to your own charm, your own looks, and you probably stink at that, so good luck anyway, right? And men aren't alone in terms of marketing. Women are marketed, I would say, even more intensely. Women are marketed to say, if you look like this, then you'll be glamorous. If you look like that, then you'll be worthy of love. If you look like this, then you'll really attract a man. If you dress like that, if you have this, if you have that. And I would suggest to you that the most exhausting two-letter word in the English language is if. And it's all driven by, are you good enough? Do you measure up? It drives, it's driven because inside of all of us is this fear, this question, do I really have what it takes? Am I really smart enough, attractive enough, good-looking enough? Do I have brains enough? Am I intelligent enough? And it could go on and on and on. And in the Old Testament we see two stories where Leah and Moses wrestle with the same thing that we as humans wrestle with today. Are you good enough? On a personal level it's a question you have to wrestle with. Am I good enough? I'd like to take us to the second part, on a spiritual level, are you good enough? Have you ever asked yourself, God, I'm not sure if I have what it takes. God, I don't think I can measure up. God, I don't think I'm good enough when it comes to you. And what's even worse is that many times then we try to prove to God that we're good enough for Him to love. I like the story that's told of a man who's teaching a bunch of six-year-olds. Sometimes life gets real when you talk to kids, right? As the man's trying to explain to them about heaven, he says, what if I sold my house and I sold everything that I had and I gave all my money away? Would I be good enough then to go to heaven? And the kids know the answer. They say, no. And so he tries again. He says, well, what if... What if I gave candy to every kid that there was? And what if I, I had uh, all my money and I gave it to the church? What if I, I did those kind of things? Would, not, would God say I'm good enough to go to heaven then? And the kids say, no. He tries again. He says, well, what if, what if I really was nice to my wife? And what if I was, was really a good husband? And what if I did all the good things that I'm supposed to? Would I then be able to go to heaven? And all the kids shout back, no. No. And so then in desperation he says, well then what does it take to get to heaven? How, how do I get to heaven? And one little kid in the back raises his hand and he's trying to get to heaven. He says, you gotta be dead. <laughs> he figured it out, right? What's the way you get to heaven? You gotta be dead. And I think some of us sometimes wrestle with this and we wonder what does good enough look like? Because we're not dead yet, right? So we wrestle with what does good enough look like? What does it look like in God's eyes for me to be good enough to get to go to heaven? And so we try many things. We'll let our conscience kind of be our guide. We'll, we'll, we'll say, well, as I look at my own life, I'm, I'm not that bad of a person. I mean, other people are worse than I am, right? Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to tell God, well, when you look at me, God, I'm not as bad as, and usually we have somebody in mind, right? And I'm not as bad as them, so God, I'm sure there's a place for me in heaven because I'm I'm not that bad. Sometimes we even avoid using the word good. We say I'm not that bad. I'd like to suggest to you that sometimes our conscience, which is a tricky thing, because our conscience is good at telling us when we're wrong, but it's not very affirming when we get things right. And so we we have a gap between this conscience and and where we are in terms of a reality picture with God. I like the story that one pastor tells of of a girl that he goes through high school with. They graduate, go their own ways. A few years later, he bumps into her. Last he knew, she was on her way up north because she wanted to go move in with a guy and live with him and it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, right? So 20 years go by and they finally meet up again at some reunion And as they meet up, he sees this girl. And as he meets her, he talks to her and he's starting to ask, how's your life? What's it been like? I mean, last I knew you were headed north and how'd that work out? And in shame, she tells her story of how that was the worst decision she could have ever made. It seemed right at the time, but as she looked back, she's like, I should have never done that. And she starts to use the S word to describe what happened. She's like, I'm pretty sure I sinned against God. I'm pretty sure that God wasn't happy with that. And she goes on to tell the story of now I have a daughter, she's 14 and and I'm going to try to teach her to live better than I did because the decision I made was a bad one. It's an interesting thing. At 21, her conscience told her, this is the right thing to do, go for it. But at 40, she sees life differently. And her conscience tells her what you did wasn't a good thing. I'm suggesting that our conscience isn't always the best barometer of whether or not we should do something. I'm gonna suggest that there's something higher than that. And that comes from God and the Scriptures. When it comes to wondering if we're good enough for God, when it comes to wondering do we have what it takes to make it into heaven, have we done enough good? Sometimes we might even think of the scale of have I done more good than bad? And if I tip the scales just enough, is is it one act of kindness more than bad? Is it five acts of kindness more? I mean, how many acts does it take to tip the scale in my favor? What do I need to do to really make it to the other side? And I'm going to suggest most of us, even though we might think we understand it, we could use some sharpening of what it really means to be good enough and what that really is true, whether that really is true or not. I'd like to share several scriptures with you. If you go to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, asking ourselves, what does good enough look like spiritually? The Bible's pretty clear, I think. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. According to the Bible, we've all missed the mark. There's none of us that's really good. We'll go to the next one. It's Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Let's go to the next one. Scripture goes on and it will say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last one, Romans 3.20 will say this, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of sin. So it's not about keeping the law to earn God's favor. It's not about doing the right things and being good enough to be able to get to heaven. The truth is no one will reach God, or heaven, by being good. The sooner we embrace this fact, the more freedom we'll find in our Christian experience. That being good enough is never going to happen. You and I could never be good enough, even two lifetimes, three lifetimes, four. It never would work. We would never get to the place where we could say, God, all of my good measures up high enough, so you have to let me into heaven. None of us can say that to God because none of us will ever be good enough to go. The Pharisees tried it. And if you go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, the Pharisees have, this is what the scriptures say about the Pharisees. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. For the most perfect people that were present in the time when Jesus lived... Jesus comes in and he says, unless your righteousness, unless your good deeds are higher than theirs, forget about it. This one statement caused a lot of people to say, then there's no hope for me. I've got no chance because I can't be better than they are. I can't be better than those Pharisees. There's no way. And you go on. There's another guy who gives us other insight into whether or not it's are good deeds that measure up to something for God. If you go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 23 and verses 39 to 41, this is the story of the thief on the cross. And the thief on the cross is someone who as he goes through the end of his life, he's there hanging on the cross and look at this if you have your scriptures with you, Luke 23 and verses 39 to 41. This is what's happening, Jesus is on the cross, the two thieves are on his side. One of them is mocking Jesus. The other one, this is what he says. One of the criminals hung there, hurled insults at him, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. The thief on the cross has no time to say, God, if you save me, I'll become a missionary. God, if you save me, I'll go to a foreign land. God, if you'll save me, I promise I'll do better. I'll try harder. If you just get me out of this predicament, I'll make it right, God. In this case, he has no time left. The clock is expiring. He has no time to do anything good. But if you notice the story at the end, Jesus' promise to him is, I promise you that today, as I give you this promise, I promise you today, you will be with me in paradise. In Jesus' economy... Being good enough never counts. In Jesus' economy, we can never be good enough. And I would suggest to you that this most exhausting two-letter word appears again. This most exhausting two-letter word appears where it's if. If only I go to church, and if only I pay my tithe, and if only I keep all the commandments, and if only I do all these things, and if only I serve people, and we can have a long, 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 long list of ifs. And God rescues us from the ifs. God rescues us by saying, it's not up to what you do. It matters what I've already done. The good news is that heaven isn't for good enough people. The good news is that heaven is for forgiven people. Heaven is ours because God forgives. Heaven is ours because God extends forgiveness to us. One author says this, he says, people choose religion like they pick ice cream. They pick what they like, what suits their taste, what's comfortable, what sounds good, what tastes good. But that's not the issue. When it comes to religion, what we need to ask is what's true. And the truth is that the only way anyone will ever go to heaven is because we're forgiven. Not because we have to measure up, not because we have to jump through hoops and accomplish certain things. Our only hope has always been and always will be Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4. As we wind down, Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4. This is what the scriptures say. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Christianity's basic tenet is this. Man sinned and someone had to die. So God stepped in and sent his son to die. Instead of going with fairness, Jesus offers forgiveness. Instead of going with justice, we are given mercy and grace. And so when it comes to the question of am I good enough, the only answer spiritually is no. And I never will be. And God never asks me to be. Jesus is the only one who has ever been and ever will be good enough. And us being forgiven by Jesus is what gives us our right to go to heaven. I'll suggest these three things for us as where do we go from here. I would suggest that we focus more on the inside than on the outside. That we focus more on the character that God's developing inside of us and who God tells us we are through Scripture than looking at the external and wondering if we measure up. This fits for both on the personal level and the spiritual level. We could spend a lifetime striving to get the approval and acceptance of others or God and always come up short but we need to let God work on us on the inside. A second thing, we need to think about what we think about. We need to ask ourselves, are the thoughts that I have in my head the thoughts that God would want me to have? Are the thoughts about myself, about always trying to measure up? Are the thoughts that I have about my spiritual life, about never reaching that level of perfection that I think I have to attain? I need to think about what I think about and ask myself, are my thoughts really taking me where God wants me to go? And the third and final thing is I suggest that we attack Satan's lies with the Word of God. That we attack Satan's lies about who we are on a personal level and who we are on a spiritual level with what the Word of God says that we would remember scriptures like Isaiah 49 16 that say I have inscribed you and engraved you in the palms of my hands that Jesus there's not a day or a moment that goes by that he doesn't see his hands and remember us and want his grace and mercy to cover us that we would remember a psalm like 139 verses 13 and 14 that say I am fearfully and wonderfully made that I am a unique one-of-a-kind original masterpiece from the hand of God there's no one like me I am valuable and worthy in his eyes. If you've ever asked yourself, am I good enough? If If you've ever asked yourself, does God think I'm good enough? I hope that you'll remember that Jesus is the only one that was good enough and that heaven isn't for perfect people who have lived perfectly. Heaven is for perfectly forgiven people who have been given mercy and grace by Jesus Christ.